0: I'm Genevieve keeney Vasquez, and we are here with Mr. Bedecker on another episode of The Final Curtain Never Closes. Mr. Bedecker, thank you for joining us this morning.
1: Well, thank you, Genevieve, for inviting me.
0: And I know this is going to be a, a very sombering subject that we're going to talk about today, one that is very near and dear to your heart, um, actually for both of us, but more so for you. And I greatly appreciate you coming on today. And... Uh, allowing us to create this tribute to Mr. Waltrip and all that he has been to the funeral industry, his amazing vision and dream here at the museum, uh, and how it came to be, and how you and I both have come together to keep his dream alive. But I think some of the things I wanted to learn more about is the unique friendship and mentorship he had for you.
1: Well, this podcast, I believe, is going to be more of a celebration of his life. Mr. Waltrip was fourth-generation funeral director, starting with his father, his mother, his grandmother, and then Bob. And uh, he was really an amazing person. We met 47 years ago. Wow. And that's when we owned a funeral home up in Jackson, Wyoming. And I was county coroner as well as the president of the Wyoming Funeral Directors Association. And I was looking for a guest speaker for our June convention. And a friend of mine worked at SCI. He was in charge of all operations. And
0: And if I may just interject, for people who don't know what SCI is and what it stands for, can you just elaborate?
1: Absolutely. That's Service Corporation International. We're the world's largest funeral home and cemetery company. We have 2,600 locations. So Mr. Waltrip started the company, I believe, in 62, and with one little funeral home that belonged to his parents in the Heights in Houston, Texas.
0: Yeah, I kind of interrupted you a little bit there. Let me take you back to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, when you were looking for that guest speaker.
1: So we were looking for a guest speaker, and then my friend, uh, John, said, what about Bob Waltrip? Well, I didn't know what a Bob Waltrip was. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, I don't know him. And John said, well, I'll go talk to him. So Mr. Waltrip said yes, that he would like to speak at our convention. So in 1978, in June, he came up to Jackson Hole and spoke, and it was an amazing class that he put on or or a speech, and it was entitled, What Is Your Business Worth? So many of our members in the Wyoming Association really got a lot out of it to the point where they wanted him back the following year. I found out a little later that Mr. Waltrip has been hunting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for years. And he came up a couple of months later to go uh, big sheep hunting. It was raining one morning, and I was in his hotel room. And we were just talking. And 10 years before that, I worked for a private company with nine locations in California called Gates, Kingsley & Gates. SCI, or Service Corporation, bought us out. And that was my first introduction to SCI, but I didn't know who Mr. Waltrip was. So he said, "You've been gone ten years. Have you ever thought about coming back?" I said, "For what?" And uh, he said, "Well, you bought rural funeral homes. So you actually you bought a job, but they'll be paid for." And uh, so my wife and I, over uh, a few months, really thought about it, and we decided, "Yeah, let's let's come back." So we rejoined SCI, but in Kansas City. And um, I stayed in touch with Mr. Waltrip, not often, because I ran a funeral home and he was the chairman and founder of SCI. So there was quite a bit of difference between uh, how valuable I was and how valuable he is. (laughs) And that's where our friendship started. In 2000, he called me into his office. At that point, he asked me if I would come and work for him personally through the company. And that's really when I started to work for him, and really started to, first of all, develop employee-boss partnership. And then as the years went on, uh, and it wasn't until probably about the last five years of his life that it became more of a father-son, but he expected me to do what I had to do. And everything that I did, I made sure it was at the level that he expected. So um, once he started SCI, I believe it was in 1962, he really changed the way that funeral service worked. And sometimes he was called the villain because there was 21,000 funeral homes at that time, all independently owned. And now, as Mr. Waltrip started acquiring and acquiring and acquiring, um, it started to catch everybody's attention. And he had a tough time in the beginning. But one thing about Mr. Waltrip that I always learned Never tell him no. So as he started trying to start Service Corporation, uh, he went to all the banks and they all turned him down. So he had this great vision, but had no money. And then he was able, uh, through a gentleman by the name of Gus Wortham of AIG, Gus said, you know, Mr. Waltrip, I'm not going to loan you any money, but I'll sign a line of credit. So you want to buy a funeral home, you just use my line of credit. And that's really how they really started.
0: Well, I know when I started here at the museum, and I got to know the name Mister Waltrip, and I got to know you as well. And I worked directly with you, but uh, you know, Mister Waltrip was was quite an intimidating name for myself uh, working here at the museum. Um, but as I began to learn more about him through you, I learned that he was quite an amazing businessman and. Um, and there were so many things that I wanted to learn uh, from him, and I know that many of the things I learned from you, I believe, came from him to you, to me. But, you know, I've always known you as Mr. Waltrip's bright hand man for the last 18 years, and it's been a relationship that I have been able to stand on the outside and observe and, and seen that mentorship, the effect he's always had on you, and it's A relationship that I don't know if you could really put a name to it. Um, And then the last, like you said, the last five years, seeing how that relationship shifted into a more personal relationship, I thought that was quite moving. And and I know his passing was not the easiest for you, especially it's interesting in our profession, in our line of work, uh, we deal with death all the time and for some reason it really is profoundly different when it affects us when you have somebody who is your best friend your mentor your the person you've lo- looked up to for so long and they come to you and say you know let's work on my on my final plan is that is that something that is that is honorable is it something that takes an emotional toll on you what was your emotional response in knowing that you were not only going to, but you were asked to plan the funeral of your mentor.
1: Well, I've been a funeral director for 57 years, and uh, so it was not out of the ordinary that he would ask me this question because one of the divisions that I'm over in SCI that Mr. Waltrip and I both co-founded is called LHT Consulting Group, and our clients are ultra-high net worth or they're notable people. And um, so when he asked me, Mr. Waltrip was a notable person, and uh, so I was looking at it at the time of. It's just being another client part of LHD. This is what I do, but I also work for him. And so it took quite a few years to put it together, and he approved every piece of it, every letter that is in anything written or printed. He approved all the poems. Uh, he used to write poems, which mm-hmm. most people don't know. So we used some of the poems and the printed materials. He approved all of those, every photograph, every movement, everything that made up his service, he had approved way in advance.
0: And speaking of his service, being the icon in the industry that he is and the amazing footprint that he has put here in the city of Houston, I have to say, once again, you did a phenomenal job planning that funeral, but people might not know you were also his funeral director. Correct. Correct. Again, kind of back to that point, you know, what an honor to be the funeral director of your mentor, but at the same time, how does that have an effect on you or did it?
1: Well, it's like burying your father. I knew what the plan said and I know what he wanted, and I was was really honored that I was able to be there to carry out his wishes. And his family also knew what his wishes were. So as a team, we all did it. And then the city of Houston and all of the residents of Houston and then the surrounding areas really stepped forward when it was announced that Bob Waltrip had passed away. Even Chief Finner had reached out to me and said, whatever HPD can do, all you got to do is pick up the phone and you give me a call. So there were so many people that uh, were involved But probably one of the uh, areas that we did, Service Corporation International, we take care of our own. And we brought Mr. Waltra back to SCI, to the corporate headquarters. We had about 350 of our associates there. And SCI is bordered on two streets, Allen Parkway and Temple Street. So the campus is right in the middle. We lined up all of the employees on Temple Street. And each one held a long stem rose. By the way, it was a purple rose. And I've worked for Mr. Waltrip for 23 years, never knowing his favorite color was purple.
0: Yeah, actually, I learned that too. The night before the visitation, uh, his daughter Holly let me know that little known fact.
1: I had no idea. Because over the years, when Mr. Waltrip would send flowers to somebody, they're always white. Always a white cross. So I assumed his favorite color was white. So in the funeral plan, I had everything as white. Oh, wow. Because he and I really never discussed the flowers. I knew it was white. So we had to (laughs) scramble and change everything so that we could get violet and purple.
0: Well, I think there's one thing that we can definitely uh, attest to is that in our industry, funeral directors really know how to make things happen quite quickly. Correct. Uh, Because death doesn't have a timeline, and there's so many things that come up in the moment. But not to mention, there's always this distractor called grief. Um, How are you handling the grief? And did you experience that during the process? Or were you really wearing your funeral director hat? Were you just like going through the motions?
1: Um, Both, but more, I was the funeral director. And uh, so when we brought Mr. Walter back to SCI and all the employees were lined up, as the hearse turned on to Temple Street, a bagpiper led him, the hearse. And then we came down in the front of the building. From there, all the SCI employees came down to the parking lot, into the front of the building. The officers of SCI were lined up on the steps, and Holly Waltrip, uh, Mr. Waltrip's daughter, and his son Blair were there. Each employee filed past the the casket in the hearse and placed their long stem rows on either side of the casket to say goodbye followed by the officers, followed by the family. And it was quite an emotional ceremony because Tom Ryan, uh, chairman and CEO of Service Corporation, then presented Holly Waltrip the flag that was flying over SCI on Mr. Waltrip's last day. This is pre-COVID. On his last day in the office. Wow. And um, we really wanted to give her the flag that was flying when he passed away, but it was an oversized flag And it was one for a flagpole, not one to be folded up. And presented. But we still had the one when Bob left on, I believe it was March 11th, 2020.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about that. Uh, One of the things I always admired about Mr. Waltrip is always being in the office. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? His work ethic was above par. He and I used to always joke
1: that he's going to die there. (laughs) And then... He and I had a joke going back and forth, which was I said, hey, Bob, when they drag your bones out of here, I'll be right behind you. And uh, he started laughing, and and he said, no. He said, you're going to stay here. But um, we always figured that if death was going to happen, it would happen
0: in the office because he he was always there for over 70 years. To me, that's just one of those things that, you know, how do you— how do you retire or how do you quit a business that you created, right? So let's. Well, you never do. You never do. And, you know, and, 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 and Mr. Waltrip was involved in so many things from the Flight Museum to the Funeral Museum. Um, let's talk about some of his extracurricular interests that he also began here in Houston.
1: Well, he didn't begin outside businesses here in Houston, but he was involved in everything. He would import a brand of cattle. And I believe that it was from Scotland, and I don't remember the name just right off. But he has patents on, uh, you know, his own breed. So he is quite the rancher as well. Uh, he was a big rancher. He owned several ranches, and he raised quarter horses. He raised cattle. He raised dogs.
0: Wow, I, you know, and I'm learning something about Mr. Waltrip now. I, I really didn't know he was such a rancher until I attended his visitation and saw some of the floral arrangements there. Um, and they were very ornate uh, with a lot of the wild life that you would see out on the ranch. So, yeah, I guess the ranching was his was his heart and soul. And then the funeral industry was his lifelong business dream.
1: Well, during the summer, he um, would travel back and forth every week to his ranch in Colorado. So he would go up on Sunday. I'm sorry, on Wednesday and come back on Sunday. Very habitual. He did as long as I knew him. And um, then he was also into Rhodesian Ridgebacks. Uh, It's a breed of dog, and uh, I believe that I'm right, that they were bred to hunt lions. Oh, wow. They're some pretty tough dogs. So he started an association. His love for airplanes. I asked him one day, I said, you were never in the armed forces. What was your love of airplanes? He told me that his father, during World War II, was in charge of the Civil Air Patrol. In Houston. So Bob used to ride with his dad to meetings and go out to airports for official visits. And over the years, Bob gained his pilot's license, his helicopter license, and he started buying World War II aircraft. When SCI first started, Bob was the first corporate pilot because they couldn't afford one, so he did it. Oh, wow. And... As time went on and he acquired more and more aircraft, he believed in museums, he believed in the public to see things. So he formed, at that point, down in Galveston, the Lone Star Flight Museum. And he was inducted in the Texas Aviation Hall of Fame. So many of the aircraft that you see there now, now it's at Ellington Field, belong to him.
0: Just like some of our hearses uh, in our collection here in the museum.
1: Well, our museum actually started... In about um, 1990, Bob had a vision that our heritage in funeral service was disappearing from a funeral director's standpoint, but also of the public. Because you know, as well as I know, as people come into the museum now, uh, especially our seniors, I remember when my grandmother did that. I remember when I was a child, I did this. So he wanted to bring all of that back because our funeral heritage, our customs, traditions were disappearing. So he envisioned really this museum to be in Washington, D.C. And as he went to the different funeral associations, uh, he couldn't get too much enthusiasm from anybody. So he decided, well, I'm going to do it on my own. So he and some funeral directors raised the money and suppliers – and opened up in 1992. At that time, it was called the American Funeral Service Museum.
0: Yeah, we actually still have that outside. Right. Uh, Right. A a little piece of our original name. And it
1: wasn't until uh, maybe six or seven years that I was involved, I had brought up a motion, let's change our name. I remember that. Because we started to collect artifacts internationally. So let's call it the National Museum of Funeral History. And Bob um, really oversaw everything. He asked me to join the board in 1993, one year later, and to actually run the museum. So that was my volunteer job. (laughs) And then about three years ago, as he started to step back, asked me to assume the role as chairman, which was really an honor for me. And it's kind of a respectful thing because there's only been two chairmen. Big shoes to fill, too. In our our 30-year history. And even today in the boardroom, he always sat at the end of the table. I always sat to his left. When we have board meetings now, I still sit to the left. I will not sit uh, in his chair.
0: Yeah, it's something that's a sign of of respect for all he... Uh, represents here at the museum. He was the chairman since the beginning, and then honorably you have taken on in that role. And um, so talk about, let's talk about, you know, in 1992, when they broke ground for the museum and how all of the things that we have in the museum in the beginning, how did he acquire that stuff? Or that Was it like somewhere in a, in a storage place that he had off-site, or was this something that just kind of slowly culminated within Like maybe over the years of the beginning of the museum,
1: in the very beginning, he had reached out to different funeral directors. Hey, do you have anything? Because we didn't have anything, and we just had a dream, right? A dream and a concept, and uh, a twenty thousand square foot building
0: that was completely empty, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: as different as word started to spread, different funeral directors approached us. One is Buck Camphausen who is still on our board today, who has one of the largest professional car collections. And uh, Buck said, well, I'll loan you some horse-drawn hearses and some motorized hearses uh, back from the 20s, 30s, and even the 1880s on the horse-drawns.
0: Yeah, because if I remember, looking back at some of the old pictures that I've come across, Um, I I kind of envisioned the the beginnings of the funeral museum was mostly like a personal uh, car collection. Um, That was basically what was housed here, right? A bunch of of industry-related motorized and horse-drawn hearses.
1: Well, we had a couple of hearses. One was horse-drawn. One is a, a Buick that is motorized that belonged to Mr. Waltrip. One of the cars that belonged to Mr. Waltrip is his father's car that Bob used to ride in when he was a little kid on funerals with his dad.
0: Yeah, that's the car that we still have today in our collection. That's the only car that's not a hearse in our collection, right? Right. Yeah, so if you're visiting, obviously you can tell which car we're referring to because uh, it's got the back seat for you to ride in.
1: So he had it completely restored. And what was funny was a friend of Bob Waltrip's, Bob took him through the museum, and I happened to be with him as we did this tour. And this gentleman grew up with Bob in the Heights. He knew the car because when he came up to it, he goes, Bobby, that's your
0: daddy's car.
1: Bob said, yeah. He said, man, we used to ride around that thing all the time.
0: Speaking of the Heights funeral home, Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit about that because, again, that's another icon here in Houston that's still operating today. And is featured in the museum. And it's kind of where Mr. Waltrip got his start. That's where he he got his start. His father was a funeral director.
1: And the employer that his dad was working for built a funeral home in the Heights and sent him out to run it. So that's the first time that they ran, I mean, that actually that they started to run a funeral home. And as time went on, Mr. Waltrip's father bought the funeral home. So now it was Bob's dad, his mother. And uh, his grandmother. His grandmother pretty well ran the ambulance service. Back then, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s, the funeral director, almost all of them had ambulance service.
0: Yeah, because people may not know, back in the day, the ambulance and hearse was kind of like a one-in-the-same one, in, one in the same type car, correct?
1: Well, that they had a combination that could either be a hearse or it could be an ambulance.
0: Yeah, so Did we'll he? let you uh, take that one and run with it, right?
1: So his grandmother, Hattie, is the one that ran the ambulance service. So in the back of the funeral home is a bunkhouse. That's where the ambulance drivers used to stay all night. Bob's mother's bedroom was right off of that. She answered the phone.
0: So did uh, Mr. Waltrip live at the funeral home as a child?
1: He lived above it, and uh, he told many people many, many times, one thing I learned from my grandmother and my mom, you can't bounce a ball in a funeral home. (laughs)
0: when a funeral's
1: going on. (laughs) So he had to be real quiet because his bedroom was right above the
0: chapel. Actually, I remember uh, one day you and I went down there and let's talk about that little known momentum, if you will, that you created for Mr. Waltrip. When Bob
1: turned 90, what do you buy somebody that has just about everything? So I went down to the Heights Funeral Home And we cut up a portion of the floor in his bedroom. I had Ken Austin, a contractor, with me. And we took uh, a board by six inches by about three inches. And a friend of mine makes ballpoint pens. So I sent him the, the piece of wood, which came out of Mr. Walter's bedroom. The floorboard. The floorboard. The original floor. The original floor. And he made a pen. And... Shined it and lacquered it. It's the most beautiful pen I've ever seen. So I gave that to Bob
0: for his birthday. That truly is a gift to give someone who has everything. A pen made out of the wood from, from the bedroom. floorboard of his bedroom. Yeah. In the funeral home where he lived. Yep. Um, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. That um, that that you had the foresight in that moment to think forward and say, hey. This would be, I think, an awesome gift. So how was that received by Mr. Waltrip?
1: He loved it. And it brought back a lot of memories for him. Yeah, I can imagine. And it was something that he could write with that he would know, this came from my bedroom. Yes.
0: Wow. And and speaking of which, that came from the bedroom of the floor That he wasn't allowed to bounce a ball on because there was a funeral going on downstairs, you know? So, yeah, interesting. So do you think people still live uh, in the funeral homes nowadays, or is that a tradition that has now gone uh, on the wayside? It depends of what part
1: of the country that you live in. I was licensed out in California, so a lot of the funeral homes out there had apartments in them because somebody had to answer the phone at night. This was way before answering machines, answering services. So there was always somebody there so that they have apartments. Uh, employees probably still live in them, but as they build funeral homes today, apartments are not in them Interesting. because of our communications and you can divert the phone to whatever phone that you want.
0: Yes, yeah, speaking of which, I think, you know, we're talking about Mr. Waltrip and, and his legacy that he's left behind, but the profound impact he has had on the funeral industry is one of my takeaways and my witnessing your inability to do certain things in life because you are a funeral director. And I think one of the amazing things that Mr. Waltrip did for the industry is allowing the funeral director to have somewhat of a life again, right? Because if you own a funeral home, you're practically married to it. And then it, you you know death again has no hours, and so you're on call 24 seven three sixty five. And with the concept that Mr. Waltrip introduced into the industry, it kind of gave way to us having this answering service, right? So that you could have your phone calls diverted, and also having shared resources now amongst other funeral homes in the industry, kind of allowing you to have a life if you plan a vacation with your family you can say, okay, I'm going to be on vacation this week and allow another funeral director within the the network of funeral homes that you belong to to handle that for you. So do you think that that truly was a concept that Mr. Waltrip was aiming for or did it just kind of happen as he began to grow the corporation?
1: Well, that was a concept that he was aiming for and that was his grand plan. Uh, which was a cluster concept. But today, there's still a lot of, of funeral homes where somebody's on call all night long. And um, the phone call may go to an answering service. However, there is always a funeral director on call to get it back on the phone, help that family in need. So that part still happens. It's still, still there, still in place. Happens. I remember when... My wife and I owned our funeral homes in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and then in three other towns. And I was county coroner. When we would go up into the Grand Teton National Park, we had uh, a motor home. I always had to bring my car with me because I would get called out or the highway highway patrol knew where I was. I always had to tell uh, the sheriff's office where I was. Or they would send a highway patrolman out to get me to bring me back. And that happened many times. I missed a lot of birthdays, a lot of holidays, but uh, that was the profession that I chose. And I didn't have a regret on it, but what Mr. Waltrip really believed in was many funeral directors that owned nice funeral homes, prestigious firms, the rest of the family, their kids didn't want to go into it. So he saw that there was a need to start buying them. Well, once you start buying a bunch of funeral homes, then it starts to come, to come down to logistics, and that's where the cluster concept comes in. If you own 15 funeral homes, the old way, you had 15 hearses, you had 15 embalmers, you had 15 uh, Chapels. flower vans, you had 15 of everything. Yes. And on a large scale, that's a lot. So what he had created is called, again, the cluster concept to where in a city there was a preparation center. And that's where the
0: to kind of like centralize everything, right. and, and consolidate the resources, and and allow yourself uh, allow the funeral homes to maximize those resources and not have an excess of it.
1: So our embalmers are at the care center. The cars are kept at the care center. The family will come into the funeral home that they selected, and then the flowers, the casket, the remains, then will be will be brought out to that funeral home the day of the funeral, a hearse will come out and help conduct the funeral, sir. And then the hearse goes back. So a hearse driver could do two or three funerals a day for three or four different funeral homes. So by having a cluster concept, he could buy more funeral homes, but be able to watch expenses. However, to be able, and that was the most important, that the families were taken care of and that we met all of their needs.
0: And he created a standard in the industry as well.
1: Well, it's a standard now.
0: Yeah. I mean, Because there's
1: a lot of uh, other consolidators out there doing the exact same thing. But when Mr. Waltrip was thinking about doing it and starting to do it, everybody said that you can't do it. And one thing about Mr. Waltrip, uh, when Bob said that he was going to do something, you can take it to the bank. He's going to do it. Another trait about him, since we're kind of talking about when he says that he's going to do something, is his hand was his bond. When he shook your hand, again, that's his bond. And he was always straight up with you. He demanded loyalty. You had to be straight up with him. So sometimes I went in, yeah, it could have been easier to lie, but uh, I don't do that. And he would be very disappointed. So he was just an amazing person that just had such high values. And he pushed those values to be sure that the client families that we serve today are being served in the way that they need to be served, all their needs are met, and that our employees are going above and beyond. We have 2,600 funeral homes and over 20,000 employees. So he started with one funeral home and he was the only employee.
0: <laughs> wow. What? Well, I mean, if anything, uh, it's interesting to see how one man's dream came to a reality, how he was able to have such an influence on so many people. And create a profession that, at the end of the day, has a very elongated impact on the families that his corporation services. And the fact that he was able to do it on on such a a large scale what is is amazing. And, and then the fact that he always gave back too, you know, gave back to the community, created educational forums through the museums that he. Uh, was very instrumental in creating and then ensuring that these organizations really spoke to the educational um, value or worth that he wanted them to be culminated into uh, the flight museum. Yeah, you could just have a whole bunch of planes, but it's so much more than that, right? It's it's beyond a collection uh, of, of somebody's iconic items over the years. It's 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 a legacy. It's um, It's allowing people to go in and and, and get up close to funerary items that they normally wouldn't have access to. Um, So he really has done an amazing job, not only for uh, funeral service as a whole, but the opportunity to educate the public about what we do as funeral directors and what goes into our profession, uh, first and foremost. But you know what? Mr. Waltrip is like you and I. He's a human with a big heart.
1: And you really hit the nail on the head just a few minutes ago that he believes in education. So when he started the National Museum of Funeral History, it was all about education. Yeah, we have hearses and we have morning clothing, but he believed in education. And when we first opened up the museum in 92, uh, a lot of skeptics were out there, a lot in Houston. And it took us quite a few years to get over that that we are a real museum. It's 30,500 square feet. It could be the largest museum in the world. We can't prove that, but we feel that it is. And it was just, again, he wanted to share. He felt that uh, the heritage of funeral service and the heritage of uh, uh, society, of all the things that there used to be three days of heavy mourning and you used to have to wear a black armband or... Uh, one around your hat, black wreaths on the door, mourning jewelry. All of that is is disappearing. And we're able to preserve that and tell the story, especially to the newer generation coming in, because they don't know about these things.
0: Oh, yeah, so much. And, you know, Mr. Waltrip in his um, 92 years.
1: He was 92 years old.
0: Yeah, in his 92 Actually, years. Actually, 92
1: years young.
0: Yes, yes definitely. Um, but could you imagine all of the changes that he was able to witness in his 92 years. And because of that, he was able to understand the importance of, of maintaining that, that, that historical custom or ritual, being able to hold on to it so that it wasn't lost in time. And he did that, but
1: Bob as a person was not one to toot his own horn. Over the years when there was different events, they would want him to speak at or do things. A lot of times he wouldn't go. And uh, he felt he knew what what he had accomplished. He didn't need to go out and boast about it. A lot of people did, but he was really uh, a very private person. When he would go up to his ranches or go out to his house in Hockley, he didn't have guests up there. It was he and his wife, Claire, when she was living, that would go up to the ranch. And their life was private. And He held on his privacy.
0: And rightfully so. I mean, uh, such a public man. And in the public service profession and building it to the magnitude that he did, I I can completely respect why he wanted to maintain some privacy.
1: The Friday before he passed away, I called him. And he answered the phone. I said, hey. And he goes, hey. I said, I don't want a thing. I just want to hear your voice and say hi. And he started to, to laugh. And we had a nice conversation.
0: Yeah, because sometimes it gets lonely at the top, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Yeah, so it's always good to know. I'm that. I'm not at the
1: top, but <laughs> he sure was, and
0: he would yeah. get lonely. I could tell. Yeah, and 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 of course, at that age of 92 as well. I mean, there's so many people that you knew in your life that have passed on before you. Uh, so that's a whole other aspect that you know we face in our as we begin to age. And so it was so nice that you know you were there for him all the way up to the end. Um, and that you were able to, to oversee his final party and his celebration of life.
1: Well, he gave me, and you know, I had told him this many times, you gave me the best job in funeral service that anybody could have.
0: Yeah, what an honor. And so today you and I sit here paying honor to all he was to the industry, all he was to the museum, and the impact he left on both of us professionally and personally. Correct. Well, thank you, Mr. Bedeker, for joining me today. And again, you know, this final curtain never closes. There's always a story to be told, a legacy to leave behind. And we hope that through this segment, you're able to reflect on your own life and understand the importance of planning ahead and making sure that your legacy and your story can be told.